0: This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Divine Echoes, reconciling prayer with the uncontrolling love of God. How the heck does petitionary prayer work in a world where there's so much suffering and evil? Is praying for others just a religious superstitious practice that does nothing at all except make the person praying feel better? If we don't pray for others, does God allow them to get sicker, lose potential rent money, and suffer in their addictions? is that who God really is? Can we engage in prayer that is more effective, less harmful, and doesn't make God look like an unfair, stingy, and fickle jerk? If you are looking for a pioneering book on prayer that is thought-provoking, challenging, and endorsed by some of today's most well-known authors and scholars, then Divine Echoes is the book for you. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hi, friends. Hello. Welcome back. Another episode of the podcast. I had an amazing conversation with Andrew Whitehead. He is the author of the book, American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. Andrew's the real deal. He's a sociologist. This is a really well done book, really well researched. And I also have had one of his uh, friends on the podcast before, Samuel Perry, because him and Andrew wrote a book uh, maybe two years ago now called Taking America Back for God that really defines what Christian nationalism is. Is. And this book is a more um, accessible read on on how to understand Christian nationalism, why it threatens the Christian church, why it threatens the gospel. So Andrew and I talk about that. We we cover a lot of ground in this one. So buckle up because Andrew knows his stuff, and we we talk about everything from the demographics of Christian nationalism to the right-wing media empire that is pushing Christian nationalism. What actually is Christian nationalism? How is it attached to whiteness? What is whiteness? So this is a very intense episode, but I think you're going to really enjoy it. And of course, friends, thank you so much for either watching or listening to this podcast. If you like what you're hearing or seeing, give us a rating, give us a review, subscribe on the YouTubes, please. I beg you, please subscribe. Um, And if you want to support our work, we are a nonprofit organization. We hold space for thousands of people and we are able to do this stuff consistently because of the generosity from people like you. So thanks so much for being here for being part of this work. Let me also mention really quickly that if you have not heard theology beer camp, the thing I'm doing with Trip Floor over at Theology Homebrew Christianity. It's happening in October in Missouri. It's going to be a great time, tons of amazing scholars and podcasts. Also, Derek Webb will be there, and so will Trey Pearson, and so will the guy from Jars of Clay, and I do not know his name. I'm so sorry, Jars of Clay guy, but they're going to be there, being our our musical guests for one of the nights. This is going to be a lot of fun. So you can get your tickets at the link in our show notes. Use promo code TNE Godpod. That's TNE Godpod for twenty bu- uh twenty five bucks off of your ticket. And I will see you all in October. All right, friends. Here's my interview with Andrew. Talk to y'all later on. See ya. Before we get to the interview, I need to remind you that we are headed to Theology Beer Camp October 18th in Springfield, Missouri. And friends, let me tell you, this event is stacked. We have amazing theologians like Pete Enns, Adam Clark, Sarah Lane Ritchie, Grace Junsom Kim, and Thomas J. Ord, many of which have been on the podcast, by the way. We have amazing podcasts showing up like You Have Permission with Dan Koch, The God Who Riots with Damon Garcia, A Tiny Revolution with Kevin Garcia, and of course, Yours Truly. And this year, the music lineup is out of control. See Derek Webb, Flamey Grant, Trey Pearson, and more perform live. Over two dozen TNE folks have already bought their tickets, and now is the time to get yours. Use promo code TNEGodPod for $25 off your ticket and come ready to explore better ways forward in your faith, meet amazing people, and if you like beer, well, your ticket includes an unlimited amount from several local breweries. This is going to be an amazing time, so get your ticket via the link in the show notes and use promo code TNEGodPod for $25 off your ticket. I will see you in October. All right. Well, friends, welcome back to another episode. I have Dr. Andrew Whitehead on the podcast. Andrew, it is great to see you. Um, we've talked a bunch behind the scenes. We've connected before uh, mm. on all kinds of stuff. And now we're here to talk about your new book. So thanks for making time. Oh, yeah,
1: definitely. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Absolutely. I first discovered you um, um, on the book that you did with Samuel Perry, Taking America Back for God. That's the first time I ever heard your name. I was, at the time, pretty green to this Christian nationalism idea. Uh, read the book. And uh, then, you know, January 6th, and just kind of started putting all these things together and said, oh my goodness, we have a major problem in my own faith tradition, you know, really, right. which is evangelicalism in America. Yeah. And, um, I appreciate your work and in, in, in the research that you and, and Sam both did on the book. I think it was really one of the catalysts for a lot of people to get Christian nationalism as like a more common uh, vernacular, right? Just a more commonly used term, which is so good. And now you have another book coming out called "American Idolatry: How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church." Mm. So I think that that's a great name. There's a serpent, um, with a little almost like cross out <laughs> of its mouth. Here. So they're yeah, starting. They're
1: starting to head out. Like they got them at Brazos Press, and people are starting to get them. So excited! Wait,
0: move the book more to the camera. We couldn't. Oh see yeah, it. sorry. That's okay. There we go. American Idolatry. Yeah. yeah. It's a little like cross serpent <laughs> thing with a tongue. Yeah. So Yeah. I love yeah, that. Yeah. It is cool. I, I think it's important, right? Because I, I let me ask you this to start off. The serpent imagery, that has mm. to be intentional. I'm assuming you're, you're doing a little callback to uh, us Christians who would think immediately being tempted in the garden. Um, And what that might signify. Is that
1: correct? Well, yeah. I mean, all kudos to Brazos Press and their designers. Um, But when they sent it, I was like, oh, wow, this really is a striking cover. And and I think it does. It reminded me of both the serpent, right, with the forked tongue, but it's a cross. So it's speaking language, right, that is right in line or sounds just like what we're used to. Um, and then when we look at, you know, even in the book, I highlight too, when Jesus was tempted, when I'm talking about power, right? Like, so, Mm. you know, when he's tempted, there's scripture being quoted. And so it just sounds just enough, like maybe what we think we're supposed to do, but ultimately Mm. right. It isn't. And so there's that. And then the tread on me, um, you know, Gadsden flag type of imagery as well. So it kind of, it works on a number, I think on a number of levels. So yeah, I was just, I was grateful for, for the great work they did
0: so you're writing this book um, about Christian nationalism how it betrays the gospel that's mm-hmm. a very Christian you know uh, way yeah. to phrase things are <laughs> yeah. you yourself are you someone who's still in the Christian tradition like give us some of your personal background
1: yeah you. yeah so you know taking America back for God which I wrote with Sam Perry like you said yeah. um, you know we're both social scientists and we're writing for a general audience but really from that academic, um, scientific empirical background. Um, and so we're trying to take those findings in a lot of the papers that we do, distill it down and and make it accessible. And then with this book, um, it really is a different type of writing than I've ever done in my career because it really brings together both my professional journey in studying Christian nationalism. um, and really trying to understand how Americans see their social worlds, um, why they vote, believe, act the way they do. Hmm. But then also my personal journey, which I I do identify as a Christian, um, grew up in a white evangelical megachurch, youth group all through college. Um, But along that journey, and this is something that I bring into the book, um, is highlighting how where I grew up, this was just taken for granted, right? In rural Hmm. Northern Indiana, being a Christian, the tenets of Christian nationalism, as I outlined them, that was yeah. a part of being a Christian, right? These things, they weren't two different things. It was just one of the same, and it was taken for granted. But at various moments of my journey, um, which, you know, the work that you're doing and others, as we're all kind of in this moment of people reckoning with the faith we were handed within white evangelicalism, yeah. and then, two, seeing how that is, you know, lived out by those in power and, and all that stuff, mm. we're kind of like, you know, as Dante Stewart, an author that I love says, yeah. you know, we're not leaving the faith behind. We're leaving behind the faith that's used to like prop up certain power interests or whatever else. Right. Or, yeah. you know, in another way, we actually believed what they taught us about Jesus and that led us right, out of the right, church. Right. Um, and so that, I'm, that's my same story. And I, I just kind of bring that in to help highlight um, what we find empirically about Christian nationalism. When we mm. take those findings, what we see over and over is that the practical fruit of it is not love, which we're commanded to do, as as a Christian, I believe that, um, and it's not just Christians who believe that, but you know my faith right. tradition, I believe that. So it's right. the practical fruit isn't love; it's power, control, domination, fear, and violence. And so right. when I see Christian nationalism, there are expressions of Christianity that can move us away from that. And so that's part of my personal journey is is finding those people, those movements that I think reflect what Jesus claimed he came to do um, and then what we are supposed to follow him and do likewise, which is, you know, freedom for the oppressed, the poor, the marginalized, um, all of those things. So that's kind of in a nutshell, that personal aspect. So I'm writing hopefully to other Christians to say, Hey, this is an issue and here's how to understand it. And then here are some examples of people that are moving away from it. And it isn't just one you know, group of Christians, but there are various ones. So,
0: yeah. How do you think your book is going to be received by maybe your target audience, so yeah. to speak? Right. I mean, I yeah, think yeah. about. <laughs> there's probably a, a high chance that, that 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 some white evangelicals are going to grab this book. I and hope maybe yeah. think about it. Right, <laughs> right. That's the um, goal. I, I, and listen, I think for anyone, it's always hard to change our minds about anything that we're committed to. So, yep. I'm not saying it's easy. But what do you think the response is going to be? I mean, I, I can hear some people saying, "Oh, another." book by a woke, Marxist, liberal, college yeah. elite, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Like, what are you hoping for when people read this?
1: Yeah. So, you know, honestly, I I really do think it will find its way, I hope, to some folks who, you know, as we talk about Christian nationalism, there are those that strongly embrace it and we call them yeah. ambassadors. And then you have folks who are accommodators. And these are folks that maybe aren't the ones, you know, calling their um, representatives saying, you know, we need to pass legislation that mandates in God we trust be put in all our schools. Like they may not be on those front lines doing that, but accommodators are those folks who are, are likely just going to stay silent as that stuff is happening because they'll say, well, if, if a religion is going to be privileged in America, it might as well be Christianity. And so they move along. What our work shows is that movements like that really do cause harm to minorities, whether religious or racial, ethnic, everything else. And so, my hope is it finds its way to some of those accommodators and just highlights when you hear Christian nationalist rhetoric, when folks are trying to push for a more Christian nation, here's what's associated with that, and hopefully helping them see that history and how it doesn't reflect what, again, I think the gospel is. Is about. And so, you know, to answer your question directly, I've done a couple podcasts um, with folks who are, you know, the reformed, you know, crowd, and um, they were very kind. And I appreciated the conversation. But they did say, or, you know, one guy said, like, hey, you know, I read the book, I'm against white Christian nationalism, which I think he really saw as like, white nationalists, Mm-hmm. Specifically, and he said, but there were parts of the book that were hard for me, and I struggled with. And I was like, I really was honored, right, that he at least read yes. it and just struggled with it, because that's my hope. And so, in the book, I try to as well just show my own story of working through these things and believing maybe one thing, and now you know journeying to believe something else, to try and go first. So it's not as though I'm sitting here pointing a finger at folks, right? But you know, if there are people maybe in in you know the lives of others who are maybe just kind of okay with, yeah, Christianity being privileged. I hope this Mm. is a book where they're not going to feel like I'm pointing a finger at them and attacking them, but inviting them to a conversation and on a journey and raising questions. Cause to me in my journey, it was those questions that just kind of like sand in the shoe, they just stuck there and I had to do something about it. And so that's what I hope this book does. So we'll see. Yeah.
0: Yeah, man, it's interesting. Um, I, it is hard not to overgeneralize. It's not. It's hard not to keep everyone in the same boxes and assume. Yeah. Oh, if you're conservative, you're automatically this or that. Yeah. I, I guess before I say that, let me ask you this question. So we're on the same page. How would? How do you define Christian nationalism in this book? Mm-hmm. Um, it. I, I definitely think there is some concrete. Um. Uh, definitiveness to the defi- you know t- to the wording, but it is a little slippery depending on who you're talking to, and people like to kind of recreate it in their own image, so to speak, right? Yeah so, yeah, yeah, so how do you define it in the book? Just so we're on that page first.
1: Yeah, totally. It's a wonderful question, and it's really important, like you said, to do that because we're in a moment now where folks are trying to try and like redefine or readopt the term. You know, It's kind of a power play where they can change the meaning and now the waters are muddied and nobody knows what we're talking about. So in the book, I define Christian nationalism. And again, this is an empirically supported definition. So after years of research and many different peer-reviewed studies, we see that um, when we're talking about Christian nationalism, what we're talking about Hmm. is a desire to see a particular expression of Christianity fused with American civic life believing that this cultural framework should be privileged and that the government should vigorously defend that cultural framework as primary. And so the important part of that is a a particular expression of Christianity, because as we know, there are many different expressions of Christianity, but this one is particularly religiously and politically conservative and ethnocentric. And we find there are a number of different elements that go along with Christian nationalism as, as we define it, because it isn't just believing in these kind of historic, maybe orthodox teachings of the Christian church, which many flavors of Christians would adhere to, but it's those plus all this cultural baggage that comes with it. And so when we're talking about Christian nationalism, it's including this cultural baggage, like one element um, is a commitment to a moral traditionalism, that Mm. society is hierarchical and ordered usually around gender and sexuality. So men, heterosexual men at the top, everybody else coming yeah. after um, right. it's committed to authoritarian social control. So the world's a chaotic place. And sometimes we need under violence or the threat of violence, strong rules and rulers to come in and enforce that hierarchy and that order. The third is strict boundaries around national identity social belonging. So who gets to call themselves an American and participate? And usually these are along ethno racial lines. So when people are imagining a Christian nation, what we find over and over, even though none of the questions we use to um, measure their belief in Christian nationalism mention race, it is strongly associated with more racialized attitudes, meaning Mm. that when they imagine a Christian nation, they imagine a white Christian nation. They imagine a nation where white, Natural born citizens are at the top. And then the last element we find this other kind of piece of cultural baggage is just a populism um, and a populist attitude where, you know, there's this um, fear that you're being persecuted, that you're victims, which makes you much more open to conspiratorial thinking and not wanting to trust elites, you know, like academics or religious leaders, political leaders, those types.
0: Unless it's on their side. Unless it's on their side. Yeah. (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah. You should hate the government but you should elect me into this government. Right,
0: yes. Hate the elites, but listen to this elite to tell you how the world really works. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah, Yeah, so
1: again, when we're talking about Christian nationalism, it's this particular expression of Christianity with all this cultural baggage, wanting that to be privileged within American civic life and have the government vigorously defend that cultural framework.
0: Yeah. That's really helpful, I think, for folks. And, and maybe if you missed that while you're driving and zoned out for a minute, go back 30 seconds and listen again so you really get that. But I think you outlined a lot of the key pillars that, that we see mm-hmm. um, from people who either would now claim the title, right? Or just like, yep, I'm a Christian nationalist. Or who would say, no, 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 we're just a good patriot or we just love mm-hmm. America. But they espouse a lot of these ideas, right? I mean, yeah. We can think about even more recently in the news, um, the reports from some of the border agents in Texas, right? Talking about, about being told to put four-year-olds back in the river yeah. and to turn them away, yeah. uh, you know, things like that, that just kind of stick into this idea of, well, we have to protect our borders from these foreign invaders is kind of yeah. the language. Yeah. And while I think anyone who's reasonable, yes, does does not want people who are here for ill intent to come across the border, of course, that is weaponized to kind of maintain this at least, like this, this dominant status quo, yep. right? That yeah. everyone else must assimilate into. And tell me if I'm wrong here, Andrew, but as I've been reading and kind of looking at just some of the racial undertones to our own history, and mm-hmm. um, I just finished the book um, um, by Jesse Curtis, "The Myth oh, of yeah. uh, of uh, It's about colorblind I'm, Christianity." Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. In the myth of like colorblindness, and it was really eye opening, honestly, yeah. uh, historically for me. And it does seem like that a lot of what Christian nationalism is doing, whether people n- realize it or, or not, is they want to have this dominant culture that really is steeped in like this whiteness of mm-hmm. a culture with the, their, their traditions and moral propensity and then everyone else can assimilate into it or get the hell out that's kind of like the bye i see right so yeah. oh look candace owens she's a black commentator right yep. we're, we're racially diverse but she assimilates her 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 views and her identity into this like whiteness i guess we can call that, mm-hmm. that then she espouses on behalf of who candace is right right so is that kind of uh is that am i kind of capturing what some of this christian nationalism is advocating for deep down
1: Yeah, no, you exactly are. So again, when we study it, we see over and over. And again, this is backed by the racial or the history that you know Jesse Curtis, Robert P. Jones, um, you know, a number of folks are writing on and showing that that this racialized nature, you know, Jamar Tisby, of Christianity in the U.S. Um, is fundamentally a part of this idea of Christian nationalism. So when we're talking about Christian nationalism, it really is a white Christian nationalism. And and again, as you point out um, correctly, it isn't talking about white as in the skin color of the person that holds this cultural framework. Right. It's talking about whiteness. Right. And so whiteness is um, this idea, or really, um, you know, this cultural framework too, um, where. It's the values and habits, um, beliefs, behaviors that result in the organization of society such that most of the benefits of it, power, privilege, wealth, flow, more likely flow to a particular group. And in the mm. US, that is white Americans. And so right. Christian nationalism is fundamentally um, a part of this cultural framework that either um, hides right those um, those social systems and structures that allow for a racialized society like ours to exist um, or it allows people just to be ignorant of it. Right. And just say like, I don't know what that's about. Um, right. And to maintain views like, well, you know, if African Americans worked harder then you know, the wealth gap would be overcome or to yes. kind of perpetuate this, this understanding of, well, racism is bad and we just need more people to know jesus right because then they won't be racist in their heart but what that allows them to ignore is that there are systems set up and have been set up for centuries that allow wealth privilege power to flow more one way so by example right when we look i taught at clemson university for a couple years and i would always ask students you know towards the beginning of the semester hey raise your hand if you had a parent or a grandparent that you know studied at clemson and you know usually like half the class would like people love going back there because they grew Mm -hmm. up going there um but the thing is is that the likelihood of a black student ever raising their hand was extremely low because Mm -hmm. this university like many others it wasn't just clemson but it was like 19 it was in the 1960s that they allowed their first black student so when we think of it that way where for centuries, well, yes, centuries, but especially decades, African Americans were not allowed to attend some institutions of higher learning. And why do we go to college or want our kids to go to college? Because we believe that getting a degree is going to improve their life. And so if we believe that, then how could we not believe that like systemically limiting their access to higher education or getting a mortgage or these other things? Um, how would that not have historical repercussions? And so when we're talking about white Christian nationalism, it allows those systemic realities to be ignored, right? And so as Christians, we have to understand there's something more than just this one-to-one nature. We're a part of these systems. And as white folks, like me growing up, they tend to just be invisible. But we have to listen to... Our black brothers and sisters, racial minorities that are telling us, hey, we're being oppressed by these systems. Now, how can we work with them to overcome them? And as we again, we find over and over, Christian nationalism stands in the way of that type of work.
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes, listen, it makes complete sense. And it is very rational to think, oh, if the game is rigged right. to favor one group of people, um, we should. Not do that anymore. <laughs> if we're going to claim to love our neighbors. Right. I mean, you know, this would be like a basketball game, right? Mm-hmm. If the ref is bought off by one of the teams and is unfairly calling penalties or something that that aren't happening to give that team an edge, no one's like, well, the other team just needs to work harder to overcome the deficit. Like right. they just need to, you know, play better. They have to train harder. No, because the games are already rigged, right? Right. So it is interesting to me, and I'm I'm someone similar to you, Andrew, in the sense of like. I grew up, you know, white evangelical, and and my awakening, so to speak, came much later on in my life. But as I thought about it, I'm like, wait, the the wealth gap between white and black America can't be just because black people are more lazy than white people. Like that, right. that doesn't hold up, mm-hmm. just logically speaking. Um, but for some reason, many people in my, the spaces I grew up in accept that as a reasonable reality. Like, well, right. if they just got out of poverty, it's like what? Yeah. So I, I I think a lot of us didn't realize how embedded this type of thinking and mm-hmm. this mentality is because you're right if you if, if it's invisible to you you just don't see it obviously mm-hmm. right yeah for sure um so i guess you know one of my questions i was wondering because i know that that the book kind of takes us through kind of your story and kind of some of the angles of like why christian nationalism is it, it threatens the church and everything else help me understand how it threatens the church mm-hmm. um because right now In the way I see things, and I like to think I have my ears somewhat close to the ground, I see a lot of Christian nationalist types of organizations, such as Turning Point USA, intentionally reaching across the aisle, so to speak, to shake hands and bring a lot of these evangelical leaders on board. Mm. I personally have gone to the Pastor's Summit. I was there in Tennessee a few months ago. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I was there for four days. So, you know, so I go to these events to see what's going on. 1,200 pastors. Right, are listening literally to James Lindsay, who's an atheist, but he's a quote academic uh, who has his PhD in mathematics, talk about the Marxification of America. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're just, ah, sounds convincing. I'm in. So, you know, I think to them, Christian nationalism only strengthens the church from their vantage point. Right. How do you think that it threatens the church from where you sit?
1: Yeah. So, you know, to do this, I have to go back. And, um, you know, if I say it betrays the gospel, then we have to define the gospel, right? What is, right. what is the gospel? And I think right. you're right for some folks, if we just, and this might be something that you remember, or some of our listeners will remember, um, growing up, the Romans Road to Salvation. Oh, I've taught it many times. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> so you go down these various quote or you know um, quotes from Paul in Romans and highlight that you know we're all sinners, um, we're right. separated from God, we deserve death. But then the good news is Jesus, um, you know, pays that price, and if we have faith in Jesus then we are now on right standing with God and then in a future time we will be able to you know go and be with Jesus and with God in heaven um and and we have eternal salvation right that we are forgiven in the here and now and spiritually right. now we are on right terms with God right um and so growing up that's what the gospel was so i'm not saying that that isn't a part of the gospel but if we stop there right what that does is it allows us to completely overlook so many different aspects of what Jesus came to do and claimed he came to do, especially when he's talking about the kingdom of God coming in the here and now, right? And so when he taught his followers to pray, a part of that prayer is, may your kingdom come on earth as in in heaven. Um, And so while the gospel is personal, right? For each person, it isn't just individualized. It has something to say about how we relate to each other and how mm. um, our society should be structured and how we should um, care for one another um, in our neighbors. And so, in his first message in Luke, um, you know, I say, well, this is Jesus essentially inaugurating what he's here to do and be about. And he says, quoting from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if we view the gospel in just those individualized, spiritualized-only terms, which I was growing up, all of that, poor, prisoners, blind, oppressed, That's all spiritual stuff. (laughs) He's not talking about actual prisoners. He's not talking about actual blind people because within white Christianity or in the U.S., we've never been oppressed. Mm. We've never been on the losing end or marginalized. And so what what need did we have of a gospel that turns the power structures upside down and lifts up the marginalized, right? Right. We just didn't need it. And those today that embrace Christian nationalism, I think in that way too, they want to perpetuate the way that it is because right now, or they have been historically right at the center of power and privilege. So defining the gospel as not just personal or individualized, but as collective, right? That he came to change how we relate to one another. Now we can start to see that um, it makes a collective claim on how we're supposed to um, be involved with one another and that it is for the here and now. So, you know last thing I'll say kind of on this to highlight it is um, the test that I use on myself is the gospel that I'm preaching, if I go back in time and I preach it to somebody who um, you know is suffering under, let's say Jim Crow, or who is on a plantation as a slave even further back, or a Native American who's being pushed off their land right by white Europeans and on the Trail of Tears, and I say, hey, here's the gospel. Just accept Jesus into your heart and you'll be good, yep. you know, in the coming, in the second coming. That isn't good news <laughs> because right. it doesn't liberate them from the oppression that they're experiencing. Right? right. And so I think that's where, for me in my journey, um, listening to those voices and thinking about, well, if this isn't good news for them in that, then it really isn't good news at all um, right. because it just leaves them where they're at. And so I, I think Jesus was here to actually physically. In our embodied reality, set people free.
0: Um,
1: yeah. and there is a spiritual aspect to that, but also a real physical aspect as well.
0: I mean, this is the claim that James Cohn makes, right? It's yes. like, uh <laughs> yep. hello, like the, you know, the the is the gospel freedom from oppression now, mm-hmm. right? And why is why has this spiritualness been weaponized to maintain the status quo here? And I think that's very yeah. interesting because I didn't put this together for a long time, but it is interesting to me that the people who are usually in the dominant power position are the ones who have no t- problem telling other people that 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 the gospel is mainly about a spiritual reality. That one day when they die, they won't burn in hell forever. So, however it is now, don't worry about it. Maybe we'll feed you. Maybe we'll you know give you some diapers. But we're not going to try and fix the systemic issues yes, because yeah. you know that's going to overthrow the, the 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 social order, right? But those same people. Oftentimes, are some of the, um, you know, they complain the loudest for the least amount of reasons. Let's just put it that way. That's I yeah. think <laughs> putting it mildly, yeah, right? Yeah. And as we talk, you know, um, Trump just got indicted again, and mm-hmm. conservative voices and people are just going crazy, right? They're, oh, this is persecution. We're under attack, mm-hmm. uh, and now all of a sudden, the gospel. And I think I'm not sure if you've seen this, but I have noticed a shift for some of these Christian nationalists who have really been using this gospel language and biblical language to then prove to their audience why they have to act now Mm -hmm. why they do have to do something about the status quo um and it's been interesting to see that because it does seem again we're speaking broadly we're speaking generally here i can't get into every single you know individual example but the, the the shift seems to be hey those things are hard issues, but mm. our culture war issues are systematic issues, are mm. systemic issues, yeah, right? for sure. Yeah. Racism is a hard issue, but abortion is a systemic issue that must be outlawed in every case possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whatever else it might be, right? Yeah. Um, working hard is up to the individual, um, but when it comes to insert, you know, culture war, uh, when it comes to sexual identity, well, they, you know, drag queens must be, uh, stamped out and must be put in prison. I mean, Matt Walsh has literally said that before, yeah, right? Yeah. So I am noticing even for them, uh, this shift of like, actually guys, you have no problem seeing systemic issues yeah. that you think must be eradicated by using the power of the state and the power of the law. Mm-hmm. Um, they just happen to be ones that, shockingly, will will keep your privilege and power at the center while keeping the voices of marginalized folks on the front. On the outskirts, on the fringes. Yeah. Is that something that you've noticed in your work as well? Any, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I think, you know, the key too is is when we're talking about power and Christian nationalism, it is self interested power. Mm. And so the ability to think systemically, I think, is there, but it will always be around those topics that will allow, um, again, the status quo to, to continue on and, right. and generally to serve the, the group, the us in quotes. Right. Um, So when we're thinking about Christians being involved in their, you know, the civic life in the U S it isn't as though um, this is a call for Christians just to opt out. Right. And not do anything. Right. Um, But what it is, um, Mm -hmm. is a call to, to lay aside a self interested power that only serves the group. Right. And so like one example is the civil rights movement um, where there was obviously uh, religious leaders are a key part of that movement. And so the Civil Rights Act, which is one of the outcomes of the civil rights movement, you know, is power, right? <laughs> it is getting people to do something they may not want to otherwise do. And that was to open for the first time you know, the democratic process to everyone, which right. never really had been. So that's right. power, but that's power rightfully applied where it isn't saying now white people can't vote and only black people can vote. But it is saying, hey, now everybody can vote. Whereas before it's, no, we only want this group to be able to to truly have access. And we see those movements even today. So again, when we're thinking about power um, and we're looking at what groups are arguing for, um, is it to just benefit their in-group to make sure that they can stay in power, privilege, or continue with the status quo? Or is it something focused on allowing everybody to flourish, to have access to democratic process, um, to be a part of, of civil society and identify themselves as, as truly American, to be a part of what it means to be a pluralistic democratic society.
0: Well, this is actually a very important point because oftentimes I get people in my maybe maybe my DMs or in the comments mm-hmm. who are like, "Oh, you're just a Christian nationalist on the left." You know, right. you want the same thing; it just looks a little bit different. And I'm like, uh, "No," and I've had a hard time explaining why. Mm-hmm. But uh, actually, Scott Coley, he's a Twitter person. He had yeah. a pretty succinct tweet where essentially he said was pretty much pretty much what. what yeah, you he's great. Say. He's a great. Yeah, he he was <laughs> like, you know, white evangelical Protestants gave us the. The conditions that created the need for civil rights movement by using their power to be more uh, exclusive yeah. and the civil rights use their power to be more inclusive. Essentially, exactly. What he says, That's right? exactly And it. And th- that's the thing is like I think a lot of people get so spooked by the idea of power at, and we should be so you're right. Um, wise yes. and, and hesitant, right, to wield them. I mean, we can draw from Lord of the Rings, I think is, is a great, yep, right, maybe sure. one of a, a, very easy example that we all have some kind of framework and if yeah. you don't have a framework for that, go watch the movies <laughs> immediately. Yeah. But my point is that, you know, power is mm-hmm. a big deal. Power is powerful by definition yeah. and yeah, it, it can corrupt, right? We, we, yeah a lot of people who end up in really harmful spaces usually don't start off that way yeah right they usually start off with good intentions they start off thinking they can help people and little by little 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 slips little compromises and the power that 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 they have is now being weaponized for their own benefit yeah this is the difference between a Christian who advocates for certain policies in civic life versus a Christian nationalist. A Christian nationalist wants to maintain the power that they can to maintain their own benefit, to maintain their own in-group, to make the laws and systems and politics and culture, you know, the seven the seven spheres of influence, so to speak, mm-hmm. centered around them, okay? But there are people, Christian or not, who believe that, yes, of course we should be able to, you know, be involved in government because we want to expand these rights, you want to expand the well-being of the nation to all of our neighbors, mm-hmm. not just the white, straight, you know, male ones, right? Yeah. And so that's a big difference. Arguing for universal health care is not the same thing as advocating for throwing drag queens in jail. Right. They are different things entirely. Or, or as Doug Wilson would say, rewriting the Constitution so Christ is King is inside of it. Right. right? They're different motivations with different outcomes. So I, I'm glad that you bring this up. And I would love maybe for you to you know share some of your thoughts on the difference that you see. And friends, I, I want to be clear. I know I say this a lot. It's, like, it's kind of a caveat, but I don't think, Andrew, I don't want to speak for you. You can tell me if I'm wrong. But mm-hmm. me, for sure, I, I'm never going to have a Joe Biden flag on my front lawn, okay? like There's no allegiance to the, the Democratic Party. Um, that, mm-hmm. that That is not what we're saying. However, in this cultural moment, the way I tell I say to people is that there's only one side that literally tried to overthrow our election and has a media empire defending such craziness. Yeah. So we are in a cultural moment where I think this is not a both sides issue, knowing very well that any political party can become corrupt very quickly.
1: Yeah, um, anyway,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Andrew. Any thoughts you might have on that?
1: No, no, that's, that's good. I think, yeah, you know, with, so as, a, as a identifying Christian You know, wanting to be part of a pluralistic democratic society means now Christians shouldn't be or expect themselves to be at the head of the table, that we're one seat at the table, right? And being able to have a conversation, collaborate, compromise. And so with that, we we need to be able to work with folks um, who might have different beliefs, but we need to come to the table with similar or the same values, right? And so if this country is going to work, as a pluralistic, multiracial, um, you know, religiously diverse, democratic society, it means that, like for me, and I have a friend, Andrew Seidel, who's uh, oh, a, Andrew's great, yeah, I've been the podcast United, many times, right? Yep. And so he would not identify as a Christian or religious. I do, but we both value the other person and their right to have a say in a pluralistic, democratic society. And so, even though we come with different beliefs. We can sit there and talk about, well, what does flourishing look like, right? And what what might we bring to the table? How could we get there together? Um, and I think you're right at this moment, right? It's pretty clear that um, there's one group that is focused on really breaking down the guardrails of democracy, and another one's not. Um, and so I think, yeah, when we listen to the voices of the marginalized or those who are I, I guess put it this way, like if there are counties in the U S where there's a 10 minute wait time in mostly yeah. white counties, like for me to vote. And then there's a three hour wait time in mostly black counties to vote. Right. That isn't just personal choice. Right. That's a systemic right. issue. And so for Christians, w- whichever party is doing that, we need to oppose that and, and recognize and realize yes. we need to be a part of allowing everybody to have access to be a part of what we're doing here. Um, and I think that, that's at the heart of being a good neighbor is it? it isn't just that we're going to win out or enforce our vision, but that we're going to be a part of flourishing and that's listening to others, the voices, of the marginalized, that sort of thing. Uh, Two
0: things. Number one, I I appreciate what you said about Andrew's side but we both know you're trying to get him saved, right? Like it's a deep, (laughs) deep down, it's an underground mission to get him to become a a born again Christian, (laughs) right? That's how we're friends with Andrew, right? Right, Andrew?
1: (laughs) Oh man, that's hilarious.
0: (laughs) I joke around with him all the time. I'm like, Andrew, I'm just trying to get you to become a Christian, man. That's the only reason why I have you on the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, Um, right. But you know, to your point, I just put this together in this moment It it does seem like, and again, there are exceptions to every rule. Let's get that very clear. But broadly speaking, it seems like a lot of people who are inside this like Trumpism cult, honestly, Mm -hmm. I have to call it what it is, are not so much values based more than like ideologically based or like even personality based. Mm -hmm. But there are people who I think. Are outside of that who are values-based. And I think there are conservative examples of that. Russell Moore is an example of that. I think he's one of the the clearest examples of someone who, yeah, Russell and I would disagree on a lot of things theologically and and probably even politically, but he he was always, it seems like, value-based. Or no, of course I'm not going to compromise these values that I claim to have as a Christian. And then he really felt the wrath, right? I mean, he got pushed out of the SBC and a lot of people now think that he's like a, a liberal, which is honestly, I think, for even Russell to hear is hilarious. Yeah, it has um, to be. but it does seem like this particular movement, and maybe is that what populism is? I, I, some of these terms, I think, kind of get in our vernacular as they're all assumed mm. that we understand them. I hear populism. I'm not, in, in, you know, entirely sure what, what what that actually is. Is is some is is a populist movement more? More like personality driven than values driven. Is that what makes it that? Unpack that for me.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And and to be honest, I don't know that I can draw the specific outlines of it. You know, in kind of the the way that you're stating it. Um, but really, yeah. this idea that. Um, you know, not to trust authority or institutions, um, but that from the people we all together kind of know, well, this is, this is right. And so it's, you know, distrust of again, institutions and Mm. people we deem elites, those types of things. Um, and I think, you know, that flows into again, as you're kind of highlighting values versus beliefs, you know, the ideological that, um, This is the only way. And and I think the power too, you know, comes within Christian nationalism. The logic is there where if they believe, you know, if part of this cultural framework is a narrative that God blessed the United States, that the U.S. is a Christian nation, um, that to stay in God's good graces, uh, this nation needs to follow God's rules. Lo and behold, we know what God's rules are, right? And these are theologies that we've built up over time to really essentially baptize the way that things are, um, as they are, um, then why would you let democracy stand in the way, right? If God has said, this is the way it has to be. If democracy doesn't return those results, then who are we to question, you know, God. And so that is again, how that it kind of creates this permission structure where they can move forward with, you know, the, the beliefs that they have, um, and, and set aside these values. So you'll, that's again why we see this flip. So PRRI has a really mm. fascinating statistic where years ago they asked um, white evangelicals how important it was to be moral, to be a good leader, political leader, right? And like 70 some percent said, you have to be moral. This is in the time of Clinton. And then they asked it once Trump is on the scene and it completely flips, right? So now, 70% say, no, you don't have to necessarily be a, a good moral person to be right. a good leader because right. it fit the moment. It fit, again, trying to structure who has access to power. And so in that sense, I think this is kind of key to that understanding of um, whatever we need in the moment to serve our interests, we're going to do, whether it we will set aside those democratic ideals and values that you know that won't even play a part in it.
0: Well, and to be clear about this, and I, I am actually interviewing uh, David Gushy, uh, that should come out um, shortly after yours, on his new book, right? Yeah. Uh, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies, I believe it's what it's called. Oh, and yeah. uh, you know, I talked to him, semi, we meet up once a month and just kind of chat with Isaac Sharp just to kind of have you know what's going on, what are you seeing? And one thing he told me in my last meeting was like, a lot of the stuff we've seen before in American mm. history, mm. the threat to democracy is new. I was mm. like, interesting. Yeah, especially from this like Christian right. Yeah. Um and and it's it, it is fascinating because as I think about my own upbringing, I grew up on talk radio. Like I mean, it was a daily right. intake for me. Monday through yeah. Friday I heard it. And I would work with my dad, you know, as a kid uh in construction, so I had the whole 9 to 6, you know, commute thing going. The, the big focus I always heard was we live in a democracy. We live in a free country. We live mm-hmm. in a country where people aren't ruled by tyranny, right? Yeah. I heard all those things. And, and now in, it's not as popular yet, but I am seeing, especially in some more of these like theonomist uh, movements, more of these like dominionist type movements, yeah. people really starting to critique democracy, oh, saying, for sure. no, democracy yeah. isn't the end goal. It's actually unbiblical, et cetera. Yeah. And then you think about, Stephen wolf's book right the mm-hmm. case for christian nationalism so folks i've we've covered this before Stephen wolf is an author he was published by doug wilson's canon press writing a book called a case for christian nationalism which by the way even many conservative folks in that world did not had major concerns about mainly yeah. the fact that he's arguing for maintaining ethnic borders okay which is code really for racial borders i mean the yeah. the guy I would say doesn't even flirt pretty much says like interracial marriage isn't a good idea. Yeah. All right. So he's really pulling from like now some of the segregationists that we all know and, and don't like yeah. again. Right. Mm-hmm. So I say that because he, there's a quote that I picked up from him that he was talking to someone on their podcast where he said, under Christian nationalism, women don't have a right to lead uh, because they're too soft and empathetic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Atheism is crushed in our society and the atheist is thrown in jail, right? So you can even hear from people who are writing books that get picked up and get reviewed and get talked about in these circles. People like Stephen are not arguing for the freedom for people to live a life as long as they're not committing harm how they want, Mm -hmm. it's now a totalitarian ideology of, no, as a Christian state, we're going to maintain these things. And if you're an atheist, too bad, so sad, Mm -hmm. you're going to be thrown in prison. That's a very big churn for me in my lifetime.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And I think too, you know, as we, as we see it, and I think the point is important is we're looking at, let's say January 6th, or even Stephen Wolf and some of those folks, like these, these folks are on the extreme, right? But it takes, I think what Christian nationalism as it's kind of broadly conceptualized in the, in the country. And for many Americans, they would never argue against interracial marriage. They wouldn't say we should attack the Capitol, um, all those things. But it does create the fertile ground for that extremism to actually take root, right, and to to flourish, and then too to get pushed sometimes into the mainstream where more people know about it, Mm -hmm. because it's able to cloak itself in this religious rhetoric that many Americans are comfortable with, right? This idea of yeah, the U.S. is a Christian nation. Um, A lot of Americans might say that, agree with it, as we as we study and as we poll, you know, and surveys the American public. Um, but I think what I hope to, in, in this book and our work, is to highlight the danger, right, that comes with that, right? When we when we believe that narrative or say that narrative, it opens us up to folks who are going to use that same narrative for very nefarious ends, and we have to be aware of it, right? So if you go back to um, the 1920s, there are KKK pamphlets. And some of the you know bumper stickers that they're selling, I saw this on Twitter. I I think it was Seth Kotler. I I forget exactly who had it, um, but it was sayings like "Protect the police," "The U.S. is a Christian nation," yes. um, "Defend yes. our schools," that type of thing. And and these were KKK bumper stickers. And so, not to say that everybody who holds those views is somehow in the KKK, but it should give us pause when folks with those views so easily use. Um, or or kind of take part in those symbols of Christianity, right? So why are they so comfortable holding a cross and then breaking windows at the Capitol? That says something about where we're at, and that's what – we need to wrestle with as Christians in America. That's what we need to really take some time to think about. And and others are saying this too, and even conservative voices like Russell Moore, like you said, but that's where we need to be is to really have a discussion of, okay, what led us here historically? And now what do we need to do to confront this so that folks with those um, despicable views don't feel comfortable using that symbolism and, and all those other things. And that's a big job, but I think yeah. we need to be a part of it.
0: No, I agree. Let me ask you a, another question, because it's not every day I get someone of your um, caliber on the podcast who knows this stuff more empirically than just, you know, experientially. Mm-hmm. Here's here's some of my concerns, okay? I, I understand, and I'm not sure if the data has changed, so if it has, please correct me, but I'm under the impression that between what you call accommodators and ambassadors, it's about 35% of the country falls into one of those two categories with, I think it was like 10% being mm-hmm. the ambassadors and like 25% or 20% being accommodators. Is that correct first?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So PRI they had a survey come out in 2023 and yes. what they found is yeah, around 10% they called, I forget who, what they called them. Um yeah, I pulled that, that I read that study maybe. as well. Yeah, some of like, Yeah, it. another ahead. um, I believe it was close to twenty percent were sympathizers. And so it was yes. around thirty or a little over thirty percent of folks who are at least sympathetic to Christian nationalism. And then when we do surveys, we see around fifteen percent are ambassadors. Um usually it's close to thirty percent are accommodators. But again, okay. you'll see those differences in how we ask the questions that make up the Christian nationalism scale. And that's, that's normal. Um, but I think just kind of getting a gauge of where that's at, yeah, around 10 to 15% of Americans strongly embrace um, Christian nationalism, depending on how you measure it.
0: Right, yeah, I'm looking at the data now from PRI. It says 10 uh, percent adherents, 19 percent sympathizers, 39 yes. mm-hmm. percent skeptics, 29 percent rejectors, yeah. and then four percent no score. They they didn't know or they didn't respond. Yeah. Um. Okay. So that being said, and there's a lot, there's a big case to make for the skeptics rejectors side and how they're obviously the dominant position. Yet we're talking about Christian nationalism, which I think just shows how powerful this group is. Right. Yeah. But. Let me pitch to you my hypothesis. Okay. All right. And based on your knowledge, you tell me if I'm sniffing, you know, if I'm on the right trail here or not. Yeah. So I obviously understand that not every person who goes to their white evangelical church or even listens to Charlie Kirk every now and then, uh, you know, is like, yes, storm the Capitol, right? Here's my concern, though, with this. Mm -hmm. While yes, it's true that you know, the the ultimate minority of people, 10% are adherents. I feel like there is this sympathizer or accommodator world that at, at best tolerates mm-hmm. those people inside of their circles. Yeah. And a lot of their networking, a lot of their funding, a lot of their publishing, a lot of their media, a lot of their draw actually is supported by that larger number of accommodators mm-hmm. um, that then actually end up fueling those... Um, ambassadors to then do things like storm the Capitol or attend Charlie Kirk's America Fest with 11,000 people where Trump Jr. is speaking and Candace Owens is speaking, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Because I hear a lot of people, they always use this. They say, well, it's a fringe group. And I say, well, fringe does not mean not powerful. Fringe does not mean not well-funded. You know, Roe v. Wade, for example, being overturned, the only religious group in the majority of supporting that decision, the only one, White evangelical Protestants, yeah. right? So you don't need a majority to to change things if you have the money, the funding, and people are placed in the right right positions. Yeah. Do you think that's a fair assessment to kind of see this symbiotic relationship, or do you, or do you think I'm kind of off on that?
1: No, no, I think it's a fair assessment because I think it it touches on a number of things that those who were at the Capitol went home to congregations and communities where. Right. There were a number of people, at least within those, that agreed with them. Maybe didn't want to travel there, but at least were like, you know, hey, you know, those were patriots, or uh, maybe I wouldn't go that far, but you know, we definitely do need to reelect Trump, that type of thing. And so right. it, it, that's that fertile ground where it makes space for it if it's not confronted and opposed. Um, and then I think your second point is key, where even though we see this group is, you know, over the last decade growing smaller, um, what. What is true is is what you said. Even though it's um, you know growing smaller, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have access to power and privilege, and that the levers of power um, have historically been in the hands of folks that are like that, to where um, they can punch above their weight. Whether it's as um, electors, right? So maybe less than twenty percent of the U.S. population right now is is white evangelical, but of the voting population, they're you know twenty five percent, and so right. those types of things can swing elections. And, and as you said too um over the decades there's been a very um concerted push within the judicial system um with really conservative judges and it paid off right decades later where um, trump came into power and so i think that's where it's keeping in mind just like you said where are the power centers um and and who has the power the funding to be able to do that because in american politics it isn't just um you know popularity or of a of a thing it's do you have the access to privilege and power to pull the levers um, for your group or for your values and beliefs? How do you address combating this? Um, mm. You know, I, it, it's a
0: very common question. I'm sure you get it a lot. I think more and more of us are waking up to the problem, right? Really? So I guess that, that that's a first. Uh, that's yeah, a good that's first step. We yep. admit we have a problem, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the second part, I and I. You know, we're working on our own things to maybe do what we can to combat this. But I think we have to first be honest. Like these are some seriously well-funded, well-oiled machines mm-hmm. that are very effective in their rhetoric. They have a very committed base. They're, um, you know, I think about the Daily Wires. I mean, one example, the Daily, I just did some research on them. Daily Wires is like eight years old. They do mm-hmm. $150 million you know, like, like, like in, in, in funding, essentially, incredible. they have you know over 600,000 paid subscribers. They produce 250 pieces of content a day, according to their own stats. Okay. Wow. That's just yeah. one. That's not including Prager U. That's not including Turning Point, The Blaze, right? So to your, to your, your point and my point, yes, they are maybe a minority, but they are well-funded and they're very loud. They're very yeah. loud. Yeah. And I do feel like, People can look at this and say, "Oh my God! Like I'm just one person. I, mm-hmm. I'm a pebble in this in this ocean of boulders." Yeah, yeah. What are some ways that you recommend for people to really start combat uh, combating this thing that yeah. honestly I can say emphatically, truly does threaten our democracy, and it really is threatening all of our neighbors.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So I mean, I try to do some of this too um, in the book, and I think there's two ways to look at it. One. Um, is the long game strategy, which I think is important and recognizing that this is a journey for many folks to help them see the problems with it. And so educating folks on what it is um, and then two, giving them vision, a vision of s- some other expression of their Christian faith, let's say. Um, right. That confronts and opposes, you know, I guess I call these idols of Christian nationalism of power, fear, and violence, um, but really to push them in a different direction. But that takes time. Right. Um, and so while we need to be engaged in the long game, um, we have to be really focused on the short term um, threat that we face, where democracy on January 6th was under attack. We have a, a former president who's now indicted. Um, running for president again. And so democracy and the guardrails of democracy are under attack right now. And so I think while we need to educate ourselves and others and serve um, to raise those questions and hopefully change hearts and minds, that takes years, tens of years, right? Decades. Yeah. Um yeah. we have to be focused on right now defending access to the democratic process. So it doesn't mean just voting, but getting involved. Um, are supporting efforts to um, ensure that people have access to the vote um, and being a part of that movement because democracy at this point really is under attack. And so we have to be raising that alarm and doing that work. Um, and then, too, the, the big thing that I highlight in the book is um, for folks like me, so a white Protestant man, um, listening to those on the margins and allowing yep. them to lead me on where I need to go, what I need to do, um, where the threat is, because they're going to see it more clearly. Because even though I'm quite privileged, um, and and in this moment there probably aren't going to be any, you know, political decisions made that directly harm me. Um, it's going to be hard for me to see where that threat is, and so right. those who are right under, under the gun in that sense, um, allowing them to show me and then tell me, and then following that lead. I think that's important. So there's a number of movements, Christians Against Christian Nationalism, Mm -hmm. um, the Poor People's Campaign, um, you know, all of those um, national movements are going to be really helpful for understanding how all these kind of disparate political issues intersect and how we can move towards hopefully creating a community, uh, you know, a beloved community where where we're intent on on ensuring all can flourish and not seeing it as a zero sum game, right? Like I yeah. can flourish and my neighbor can flourish. It isn't as though right they need to have less for me to have, you know, what I need. And so, yeah. I think those are yeah. some of the things that I try to highlight. I
0: think that's helpful. You know, I think a lot of people who are at home who don't do this kind of stuff for a living go, I'm just a mom i'm just Mm -hmm. a college student i'm just trying to raise my kids i mean that's my partner right she's like tim i don't want to hear about it if we have two kids under four yeah i'm just trying to survive and i'm like i I get it okay i will not talk to you about marjorie (laughs) taylor green or whatever it is yeah um but i i think also like what's very important for people to think about is this is a long game play but Mm -hmm. there's there's there is some short-term things that we need that we need we need to solidify and i really agree with you protecting our democracy uh so we have a democracy to argue in uh Mm -hmm. would be a first good step right like at that point pragmatically i will work with anyone yeah i don't care how much you disagree if we can handshake on let's save our democracy and let's let's have a place to live in that we can both disagree on and not get thrown get put in prison for it Fine, I will work with you. Yeah, and then after true. we say that, then we can go back to our corners and say, you know, yeah. you're this or you're that. But I think like pragmatically, we have to start there. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we have to think about getting more organized and think about how do we build coalitions? Because one thing, and this is, I mean, I shouldn't say this publicly, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been working a lot on just like some back end stuff and thinking about the next evolution of TNE with some of our people. And I realized that like the strategies that right-wing media has used are incredibly effective. Yeah. Um, I was checking out um the, the Daily Wire. I was I was on their their TikTok. They have Dennis Prager on there. Dennis Prager is not a Daily Wire employee. He's technically a competing organization, but yeah. his video is right on there. Charlie mm-hmm. Kirk has Ali Suckey on on his show, and vice versa. They are not competitors to them. They are unified and they are mm-hmm. like cross pollinating, right? Yeah. And I don't think that is happening in some of these other spaces, and it needs to. There's yeah. no reason why we why, why we shouldn't look at like the the frameworks that they operate in to see how effective they are and use them yes. for change yeah. and also realize that they played a long game right daily wires eight years into this yeah. turning point is 10 years Prager used like, i think 10 or 15 years so this is not an overnight thing but yeah. we need people who are willing to th- help however they can right yeah. whether that's donating to their favorite organization whether that's voting and showing up or community organizing we have to think wide uh, and get people involved wherever they can be to make that yeah. change because not to sound like one of these right wing, you know, like the sky is falling tomorrow. Obama's a Marxist. I don't mean to sound that hyperbolic, but I really am convinced based on the data, based on what we're seeing, that um, if someone like a Trump figure was elected, we would be in serious danger of losing things that we truly do just assume are are objective realities about the world that might not be there anymore. So I think it's really important that that we do whatever we can to maintain at least that level of democracy and then we can go from there.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's well said. I think it's true. And yeah, there are groups that are really trying to understand and see that. Um, I think the Poor People's Campaign calls it like fusion movements, right? So mm. very, you know, people that might see some things differently, but there's enough to agree on that now working together, can we defend the right for, yeah, each other to exist, to take part, to be a part of what we're doing, and so, yeah, yeah I think I think that's so true, and and I think too the call to um, look at how successful the right has been on building institutions, right, and um, organizations, and really understanding how to do that um, is key, and so yeah. that's it's going to be difficult um, because uh, having a really simple message that is oversimplified um, to a really pretty much homogenous group where everybody's yes. pretty much alike, that's a lot easier to mobilize. And that's what we have generally on the right. Um, and so for people that are more progressive, there's going to be a lot more differences, racial, yep. ethnic, gender, sexuality, religious, um, all of those. And so it, it will be more difficult. So again, coming back to what values do we hold in common, even though our beliefs might be different yeah. um, and focusing on that and you know, I would hope that we, yeah, buy into the um, the hope of of what this country was founded for, even though those that wrote those words didn't live it out, um,
0: right.
1: but that we can move towards that together. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, the
0: book is American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. The book is out now. I know it's not out right in this real-time recording, Andrew, but by the time it comes out, it will be out now. So the book is out now. You can pick it up on Amazon, anywhere else that books are sold. Andrew, do you have like a public platform? Do you have a... Are you on... I hate to even say the T word, the Twitter word, but are you on the Twitters? Are you on Threads? I mean, where are
1: you? Right now, I... As we record this, I, I will be on Twitter. That's up for discussion because it is turning um, pretty oh crazy. But yeah. I am on Instagram, um, and I do have an author page on on Facebook. Try to explore some other ways to stay in touch with folks because, yeah, the beauty of what we had, you know, years ago in Twitter is really starting to be degraded. So I'm I can be found there right now. If I disappear, I'm I'm elsewhere. But I'm looking at that. But yeah, thanks. Yeah. hope people find the book, um, review it if you like it. That always is super helpful with the algorithms and everything. So yeah, just appreciate the ongoing conversation.
0: Absolutely. We'll definitely keep in touch. I'm sure we'll do more work in the future and uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon.
1: All right. Sounds great. Thanks.